I want to begin this morning by asking you a question. What is the greatest miracle that happened during Jesus' earthly ministry? Think about that for just a moment. Do you think it was when he walked on water? It's pretty incredible, isn't it? What about when he, he raised someone from death? Again, miraculous and incredible, right? How about the feeding of the 5,000 or even his, his resurrection from the dead? I'm sure if we went around the room this morning in both services, there would be a number of different answers to that question because let's be honest Jesus did some incredible things during his earthly ministry well this morning we are going to discuss what I believe to be one of the most important miracles in the Christian faith and here's the interesting thing about this miracle it's one we don't often think about that much at all, yet it is at the core of what we believe as Christians. Do you know what miracle I'm talking about? Many of y'all have read the title of today's sermon, so you know, right? It's a, the miracle that should be on all believers' minds this time of year. It's a miracle that made all other miracles Jesus performed possible during his earthly ministry. It's the miraculous conception of our Lord. The miracle of the incarnation. It's the miracle of God becoming a man yet remaining God. Think about that miracle for just a moment. You realize the importance of it? Do you? Do you realize that without it we don't have anything else? We don't. If God the Son did not take on flesh and live among us and dwell among us, we don't have anything. We, we don't have a representative. We don't have a substitute. We don't have a mediator. We don't have a redeemer. We don't have a gospel. Therefore, we don't have a hope in the world if God the Son did not become one of us. Former president of Dallas Theological Seminary, Dr. John Wolverd, once said this. Look at this quote on the screen. He says this, the, the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ is the central fact of Christianity. Upon it, the whole superstructure of Christian theology depends. The whole of Christianity rests on the fact that God the Son took on flesh. Matthew understood the importance of this miracle, which is why he leads with this truth in his gospel. If you have your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 1. We were here last week, Matthew 1. This morning we are continuing with our Christmas sermon series entitled Our Amazing Messiah. And this morning we're going to be talking about the amazing story of Jesus' incarnation. And the passage we're going to look at this morning and in, in Matthew's gospel, Matthew explains to us the events surrounding this wonderful miracle. Now, what's the purpose of Matthew giving us this information? Why single out this, this one event? Well, if you remember from last week, when discussing the reason Matthew wrote this book, remember I explained to you that he is 
writing his gospel for the purpose of convincing his readers that Jesus is God's man, his Messiah, the Christ, the Son of the living God. He's not just objectively reporting facts. He is giving a defense for the faith. He's not simply saying, oh yeah, FYI, by the way, Jesus was miraculously conceived and born of a virgin. Thought you should know. Now he's, he's urging his readers here to consider the evidence for Jesus' incarnation and to realize the importance of it. Why? Because just like there are opponents to this doctrine today, there were opponents of that doctrine in Matthew's day as well. There were some in, in Matthew's day in the first century who were skeptical of the incarnation. Many believed Jesus to be an illegitimate child conceived out of wedlock. So some questioned the moral reputation of Mary and probably believed that this was a scandal that was covered up by Joseph. Many also believe this story was fabricated. It was, it was put on by Jesus' followers. In, in Matthew's day and in every generation since, there have been fierce opponents of this doctrine. So Matthew writes what he does here to defend this teaching, and he writes to convince his readers that Jesus came from above. He was miraculously conceived by the Spirit of God and was born of a virgin. And he does this in this text we're going to look at this morning in two ways. There are two ways Matthew defends his teaching and convinces his readers of the truth of this doctrine. Number one, he gives evidence for the incarnation and then he explains the importance of it. He gives evidence for it, explains the importance of it. Let's look first at the evidence for the incarnation. In verses 18 through 19, Matthew gives us some convincing evidence for the miraculous conception and the virgin birth. First, he calls for his readers to consider Joseph and Mary's circumstances. That's the bullet point under that point there. Joseph and Mary's circumstances. In verse 18, Matthew says this. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. We're told in verse 18 that, that Mary conceived while she was betrothed to Joseph. Now, to understand the significance of the timing here and why this gives strong evidence for the incarnation, we must understand what it meant in that day to be betrothed. We don't use that word today, do we? But when it's used here, it refers to being engaged, which to us is a lot different than being married, right? Today, there's not all that much that is binding about an engagement unless you bought some expensive rings, right? Therefore, it's not all that uncommon today to hear about broken engagements. But in the first century, in Israel, being betrothed was much more final much more committal, much more permanent, much more significant than an engagement is today. To say that Mary was betrothed to Joseph in that day meant 
that though she was not yet living under his roof, she had pledged and he had pledged to be married in front of other witnesses. So legally, they were considered to be husband and wife. Now, though that's the case, though they were all in and fully committed, those in the Jewish community viewed it as inappropriate for a couple to come together during this period and live together and have sexual relations at this time during this period of time. So, though they were legally considered husband and wife, they were not yet together. Mary Mary and Joseph were not. Like good Jews, they were abiding by the customs and the laws of the day, and they were not yet living under the same roof, and they had not yet consummated the marriage. It was at this time in the relationship when Mary conceived. Now, the timing on that is impeccable. It really is. You have a couple who are viewed by everyone as being husband and wife, yet everyone also knew they were in that period where they had not yet had sexual relations, and it was at this time that Mary gets pregnant. Now, how does that happen? Sure, Joseph wanted to know. Well, Matthew tells us. He lets us know in verse 18 that this child is a unique child, a special child. This child does not have an earthly biological father. This child is from the Holy Spirit. And again, on top of making that claim, Matthew gives the evidence for this by informing us that this baby was conceived before Mary and Joseph came together as husband and wife came about while they were betrothed. Now, upon hearing that, some will say, yeah, but who's to say they kept their nose clean? I I know technically they were not supposed to be together, but but who's to say that they were not together? Who's to say they didn't find themselves alone at a certain time and, and mess up? Or who's to say that there was an infidelity? Who's to say that Mary was faithful? Joseph certainly questioned that. We're going to see that in just a moment. So some will, will, will argue they might not have lived under the same roof, but there's other ways of getting pregnant by Joseph or someone else. So who's to say that didn't happen? Well, that moves us into our second piece of evidence given here by Matthew and also in Luke's gospel as well, and that is Joseph and Mary's character. Not only do the circumstances surrounding this conception give strong argument for the virgin birth, but also the character of Mary and Joseph. First, let's look at the character of Mary. Now, though we learn more about her in Luke's gospel, Matthew also shows that Mary is a woman of moral purity. He mentions it in verse 18, that she refrained from being with her husband while being betrothed to him. And in verse 23, he explains that she is the fulfillment of the messianic prophecy found in Isaiah 7 that says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. You've got to be a virgin to fulfill that prophecy, right? So, so Matthew hints a few times at the moral purity of, of Mary, Mary and also her, her obedience too, right? To, 
to, to keep with the laws in that day. Also in, in Luke's gospel, Luke not only informs his readers of Mary's moral purity, but also her great faith. He tells us that when Mary received the news that she was with child and that the child was the Messiah, Luke says that Mary believed the word of the Lord and placed her trust in it. Mary was a woman of great faith. Now, was she perfect? No. She needed Jesus' saving work, same as the rest of us. But she believed in God's word. She walked by faith. And then after that, Luke records for us a wonderful song of praise that Mary sings. We looked at that song last Christmas, and it, I believe it's in your scripture reading this week. She was a godly woman. What about Joseph? Let's hear what Matthew had to say about Joseph in Matthew chapter 1, verse 19. He says, And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. So we're told here two things about Joseph's character here as he receives news of Mary's pregnancy. One, we are told he was a righteous man, and two, we're told he was a kind man. First, he was righteous, deciding to divorce her quietly. Now, some will read this and say, but I thought you said he was a, he was a kind man. I mean, it sounds like here he's just kind of tossing her aside without a second thought. Now, listen, Matthew shows us here by Joseph's actions that he shows himself to be a righteous man. You see, Joseph cared about marriage. He understood the sanctity of it. He, he knew that the marriage bed was to remain undefiled. And though, though he cared for Mary, he loved God and his law more. He was, he was righteous. But notice he was also kind. Joseph proves his kindness by not putting Mary to shame. It's obvious from this passage of Scripture that Joseph cared for Mary because he doesn't make this matter public. In those days, when a woman would commit adultery, they were publicly disgraced and they were expelled from the community. Do y'all remember the story of the woman at the well? Y'all remember that story? There's a reason why she's at the well at midday by herself. It's because she was an adulterous woman who had been publicly disgraced and shunned for her, for her indiscretion. So, so that happened to women in that day. Yet Joseph, being a kind man, wanted to spare Mary that humiliation. So he makes plans to take care of matters privately. He cared about God's law, yet he did not want to bring the weight of the law down on Mary. He was gracious and kind. Now, I believe we, we learn quite a few things from both Mary and Joseph's character and their actions in this story for ourselves, right? For example, parents, we see what kind of parents we ought to be, right? By looking at the character of the parents God the Father chooses for his son, we can know the kind of parents he wants us to be for our children, right? And believers, we see the type of believers we ought to be. Trusting, faithful, worshipful, just, gracious, and, and kind. But, but again, I also believe Matthew's main point for writing here is he's giving further evidence 
for the incarnation. You, you see, not only was Christ conceived during Mary and Joseph's betrothal period before the two were living together, before the marriage was consummated, but we can also trust in the fact because of the great moral character of these two individuals that the marriage bed, before they came together, it remained undefiled. They did not consummate the marriage. In fact, till after Jesus was born. Matthew tells us in verse 25 that Joseph did not know his wife until she had given birth to Jesus. Therefore, there's only one explanation that we have for Mary being pregnant here, and it's that the baby in Mary is miraculously conceived. So there is evidence for the incarnation. And on top of giving us evidence for it, Matthew also explains the importance of it. That's our next major point, the importance of the incarnation. You know, evidence matters little when it comes to the incarnation if we fail to understand the importance of it. And Matthew gives us several reasons why the incarnation is important. First, because it reminds us that God was with us. Look at the end of verse 18 again. Matthew tells us, Mary was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Now look at verse 20. But as Joseph considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Verses 22 through 23, Matthew says, All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now folks, twice in verse 18 and 20, we're told that the baby that is conceived in Mary was miraculously conceived from the Holy Spirit. And in verse 23, we're told that the baby is to be named Emmanuel, which means God with us, which indicates to us that this baby is God incarnate. Matthew is driving this point home here to make the point that this baby in Mary was from above. This baby in Mary is God in the flesh. Believers, the, the incarnation reminds us that God became one of us. The God of the universe, the creator of all that is, has chosen to enter into this world as a man, as one of his created beings. That's the point. Matthew's making here. That's the point of John 1, 1 and verse 14 as well that you'll read. He's saying the reason it's important to focus on this miraculous conception, the reason this incarnation is important is because it reminds us that God the Son left the riches of heaven, took on flesh, dwelt among us. It reminds us that there was a time when God stepped out of eternity and into history, into the world, He created and became one of us. The incarnation reminds us that God was with us. That he walked with us and talked with us, ate with us. He became one of us. He was with us. Folks, we do not serve a God who has remained removed from us and who cannot relate to us. Quite the opposite. We serve a God who became one of us and lived 
among us. He has come down to identify with us so that we could identify with him. God the Son has condescended down to us so that we, through him, could ascend to God the Father and have access to his throne of grace by the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. That's why we sing this Christmas season. That's why we rejoice. It's because of this great work that God has done for us. God has come down to us. He felt what we felt, experienced what we experienced. He underwent the limitations and the frustrations of daily life just like us, for us. Therefore, he can relate to us and sympathize with us and he can be our perfect representative. So the incarnation is important because it reminds us that God was with us. Second, it's important to focus on the incarnation because this doctrine explains to us how salvation is possible. Look at verse 21. She, Mary, will bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. So this son of Joseph and Mary, we're told here, God the Son, Jesus, will save his people from their sins. Now, how does he do that? How does Jesus save people from their sins? Well, number one, notice he does it by providing the ultimate sacrifice. And that is himself, right? Jesus saves people from sin by providing the ultimate sacrifice. Because Jesus is fully God and fully man, he is able to fully and completely save us. That is the reason he is our ultimate and perfect sacrifice. You see, in the Old Testament, they were always offering up these sacrifices. Many, many sacrifices. Sacrifice upon sacrifice. Why so many? Because none of those sacrifices, none of those animals could ultimately save anyone. They could not ultimately atone for sin. They simply were offered in faith looking forward to the Messiah to come. I've heard somebody use the illustration of a credit card. Every time they were offered, it was like swiping a credit card. When Jesus came, he paid it all, though, right? That's how it works. But we're told in in Hebrews that None of those sacrifices, none of those animals could ultimately save anyone. They simply pointed to the Messiah to come. The blood of bulls and goats cannot take away our sin. No animal, no creature can save us. The only one who can save us is the God-man. Only the God-man can do it. We often miss this when sharing our faith. We often share about how God has provided a solution for our problem that he gave us a gift we do not deserve but we fail to recognize we we fail to mention the fact that he was the solution he was the gift because jesus is fully god and fully man when he goes to the cross and he lays down his life there he provided the father with the ultimate and perfect sacrifice as a result of that act there are no more need for lambs bulls goats or rams because jesus is the ultimate sacrifice he is completely god completely man when he goes to the cross he he pays for our sins completely as a man he pays for our sins men and women right is God, he pays for our sins in an infinite measure because he's infinite. 
No goat, no ram, no bull, no lamb, no finite creature under heaven can do that for us. But Jesus can because he's the God-man. It's the way it works. It's one way Jesus saves. Another is by being a righteous representative. Listen to Romans 5.19. I believe you have these verses in your, in your study guide. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. We know who that is. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Jesus is our righteous representative. Remember we talked about back at Easter when we were going through 1 Corinthians 15 that you and I, we all have one of two representatives representing us before God. It's either Adam or it's Christ. If Adam is our representative, which he is by birth, he is representing us in terms of his disobedience, and his disobedience brings about for us sin and death and judgment. But if Christ is representing us, he represents us, he becomes our representative by our faith alone in him alone. He's representing us. He is representing us in terms of his obedience. And his obedience, his person and work brings about for us righteousness and life eternal. That's why we need Jesus to be a man because as a man, he is representing us on behalf of God. He is representing us to God and he is able to do that successfully because he's the perfect man who lived the perfect life for us. Another way Jesus saves us is by being an appropriate substitute. Talked about this a bit just a moment ago in the first point of this section. Listen to Hebrews 2.16. We're going to be in Hebrews in, in, in this next year. I'm excited about it. We're going to talk more about this. Hebrews 2.16-17. For surely it is not angels that he, Jesus, helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. Listen, Jesus did not become an angel. It's very, very important that we remember that. He didn't become an angel. You know why? He didn't come to redeem angels. It's, it's that simple. He became a man because he came to redeem people like you and me. That's why he became one himself in every way. In every way. That's why the incarnation is important. It's important for us to affirm that Christ became a man because we men and women are who Christ came to redeem. And because he was completely human, like we said just a moment ago, fully man, he was able to fully and completely be our substitute. When he went to the cross and died, he died for you and for me, and he was able to be our substitute because he was, he was fully human, just like, like us. If Jesus is not fully man, if this incarnation, this doctrine of the incarnation is not true, he can't do any of that. He cannot truly die in our place, and we're, we're lost, dead in our sins. Incarnation is very, very important. He had to become one of us in order that he might become the true substitute for us. And fourth and finally, Jesus saves by being a perfect mediator. Perfect mediator. Y'all know this 
Many of y'all know this verse of Scripture, 1 Timothy 2.5. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. See, the way God has related to his people all throughout biblical history and the way he relates to us today is through covenants, through these agreements between us and himself. And he always keeps his end of the agreement. Amen? Aren't you thankful for that? And, and in these covenants, there have always been mediators, always been middlemen. And one of the most well-known is Moses, right? Moses stood before God on behalf of, of his people. He stood before God's people on behalf of God. He stood before Pharaoh for God and on behalf of his people. He was a great mediator. But he pales in comparison to Jesus. Guess what? Because of Jesus, we're not in need of any other middlemen, any other mediators like Moses, because Jesus is our eternal, ultimate, perfect, and final mediator. He mediates between humans and, and God, between us and God, and he is the perfect mediator because he is fully God and fully man. We've been talking about that because of the incarnation. Because of the incarnation, Jesus can represent us perfectly because he is one of us, a perfect one of us, and he can also represent God perfectly because he is fully God. He's the perfect middle man, able to go between God and men and stand between us and mediate this new covenant that he has made possible through his person and work. So the incarnation, the fact that, that Jesus is fully God and fully man is essential to our salvation. I pray you see that. Let me close by saying this. There's a great verse of scripture that really captures the importance of the incarnation and it's found in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. I believe I've included these verses that I've been mentioning this morning in your study guide and scripture reading. But this is what Paul says. Listen to this. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. One of my favorite verses of Scripture. Paul stresses the importance of the incarnation here in a single verse. Notice there's three parts to it. Paul says he was rich, he became poor so that you might become rich. Folks, Jesus was rich. God the Son, the King of Kings. He came from above before taking on flesh and living among us. He existed from eternity past. He coexisted with the Father, the second person in the Trinity. He existed with the Father in, in glory, in this perfect relationship, this perfect union with Him. He is God the Son, and He was rich. And yet, though He was, Paul tells us here, and he tells us in Philippians chapter 2, that, that Christ refused to cling to his equality with God. Instead, he emptied himself. He became poor. He became one of us. He took on poverty for us. He did this for us, believers. He became poor for you and for me. He left the riches of heaven for you and for me. Why? So that you and me, through his poverty, might become rich. Y'all know Paul's not talking about financial riches here, right? You should know that kind of prosperity doesn't bring satisfaction that lasts. 
No, in mentioning riches here, Paul's talking about heavenly riches. He's talking about being forgiven of sin, being made right with God, being adopted into his family. He's talking about spiritual wealth, heavenly wealth, wealth that lasts, wealth eternal. Paul says this kind of wealth, these riches have been made available to all through Christ. But get this, not everyone will lay hold of these riches. Paul says, by Jesus' poverty, you might become rich. You notice that? Now, might become clearly indicates that some may not. Listen, not everyone will experience this wealth. Only those who trust in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ alone, only those who embrace these key truths we've been talking about and discussing today that God took on flesh, that he emptied himself by becoming poor, by becoming a man, and that he died a death we deserve to die in our place and for our sake. Only those who embrace those truths and trust in Christ alone for salvation will experience these riches. If you're here this morning and you have not embraced Christ as your Lord and Savior, if you are not trusting in him alone for your salvation, you have yet to lay hold of these riches. But I got good news for you this morning. If this is you, things can change for you this morning. You can be made right with God this morning. You can become rich this morning if you would forsake your sin, turn from your sin, trust in Christ, cling to Christ, make him your Lord and Savior. Trust in him alone for salvation. You can be saved this morning and you can experience these riches. You, through Christ's poverty, can become rich. If you've never made that decision, I pray you would today. Let's pray.